you grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 3 of Genesis, and this morning we're going to be reading verses 8 through 13. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, Larry's got some in the back there and would be happy to bring one to you if you haven't picked one up already. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, that's where we'll start reading. But before we dive in, let's just consider maybe a little bit of where we've been or, or maybe some thoughts that you might be having as a result of where we've been so far in the book of Genesis. We've explored chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the first seven verses in chapter 3 so far. But to be honest, we've bitten off a lot uh, in those first five weeks we've spent here in this book. And we've thrown a lot at you. But because of the way that this is structured, because of the way that the book of Genesis is structured, I wanted to get a bunch of concepts in front of you in order that you might see them. Because once we get through the end of chapter 3, we're going to see beginning in chapter 4 and moving through chapter 11 where we're going to end our time together in Genesis, at least for now. Genesis chapters 4 through 11 are going to hinge heavily upon, upon chapters 1 through 3. So we're going to take some time, and even over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to slow down in chapter 3 and really hammer on some of these ideas that we see here. But if you're thinking to yourself, chapters 1 and 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 has been a lot, a lot of stuff, you're not wrong. But hold on, because when we get through the end of chapter 3, again, 4 through 11 are going to be a lot of, remember what happened in chapters 1 through 3. Not that there's going to be some redundancy here, but we're going to be building out some of these ideas. It's really important that we understand the sheer magnitude of 1 through 3. And so that's what 4 through 11 are going to be doing for us. And honestly, the rest of Scripture is going to be doing for us is, unpacking the sheer magnitude of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. So let me sum it up by saying this. This week I had some interactions with some, some folks, um, two different churches in which I have friends and acquaintances. And they, they said that their churches have said, because we're in chapter 3, think about this with me. Their churches have said, we don't really think that people like talking about sin. So let's kind of, you know, soft pedal it, scale it back, tone it down a little bit, and not really dive in on that. And here's my answer to that question, and sort of the reason why, or one of the main reasons why, we're in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3, and that's the beginning of the Bible. It's really hard to understand the ending of anything if you don't first understand the beginning. There's no comfort in the words, God sent his son to die for you, when you have no concept of why you were going to die in the first place. And you're not going to die someday because God designed it that way. We see that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, but because death comes through sin, which is introduced through the man and the woman in Genesis chapter 3. And so, if you've been with us for a while, or maybe you're visiting with us, one of our core values, our first core value, is that we're centered in the gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. But there is no good news for us if there isn't first bad news. You'll remember that when we talked about the gospel, when we 
when we set out to go through our core values last October, November, sometime in that time frame. And the bad news is what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 12. We read this last week together. Paul says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And that's not just news. It's not neutral news. It's, it's, it, that's bad news. It's bad news. It's certainly not good news. But Paul doesn't stop there in Romans 5, because later in that chapter, in verse 17, he says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So for us as a church, in order to be gospel-centered, our first core value, we must understand the events of the beginning that are the bad news in order to understand better the events that lead us into the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the truth that Jesus came into the world, lived a life of sinless perfection, took upon him on the cross the sin of the world and died in our place to save those who repent of their sin and trust him as the only way to have eternal life in the presence of a creator God. You can't understand that story without having a good grasp on the events of the beginning. So what I'm saying is this, if you feel like the last few weeks have been a lot and you've been hit with a, a fire hose, you're not wrong, but hold on. I'm committed to your understanding. Let's work on this together. And my prayer is, that I'm not getting in the way of that understanding. But more important than that, God is for you, friends. And that, that's what the Bible is about. It's God demonstrating to you that he is, in fact, for you by communicating to you about who he is. You're his child if you're in Christ. And he's a generous father who wants you to know him through his word. And more of him is the greatest gift that you could hope for, for the rest of eternity. So with that in mind, I want to say all that at the outset because I know that there's just been a lot that we've dug into over the last several weeks. But with that in mind, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3 and I'm going to read verses 8 through 13. I hope you have these in front of you this morning. Let me read. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Hmm. A few months ago, like many of you, when the fall rolls around, we made our annual pilgrimage to Bismarck to Papa's pumpkin patch. Um, I'm sure many of you with youngsters did that as well. If you don't know what Papa's Pumpkin Patch is, that's fine. You can Google it later. But we went on a, a weekend, and there were a lot of people there. 
And one of our children, honestly, I don't remember which one. That's sad. But I don't remember which one. But you, you, you know probably which one I'm talking about because oftentimes 95% of the time he's the one who, and I just gave it away, that's like 40% of our children are he's. So one of our children, he disappeared. It was like a few minutes. It wasn't panic mode. Look at Rebecca, you remember this? It wasn't panic mode, but we were starting to think to ourselves, we might out of the stage of, he couldn't have gone far, right? Like, oh, now it could be. He could have put a half mile if he was sprinting in between us and, and the next location. And so right about the time when I started to think that we would have need to contact an employee or something like that and, I don't know, put out a missing persons report, uh, he showed up. We found him. So we did the whole stick close to us, talk, we're worried about you. And he said, well, I wanted to go over there. And we said, yes, we know. But dad and mom, we told you to stay close and you were doing what you wanted and that's disobedience and you know the drill. But as that feeling came over me, when I got to that stage of like, yeah, he's, he could be a long ways away by now. I thought about this text in particular. I wonder whether that's what God felt like in that moment. I wonder if that's what God felt like in, in this text. In verses 1 through 7, when Adam and Eve sin and they, Adam willfully disobeys, Adam, Eve is deceived by the serpent. I wonder if that's what God felt. Now we know clearly through Scripture that God is infinite, He's eternal, He's all-knowing, He's all-powerful, etc., etc., etc. And this text doesn't challenge that. God doesn't ask Adam and Eve these questions here for his understanding, but for theirs. And how, however, that point aside, the proximity between God and the part of his creation that he loved the most, that he breathed his breath into, and set, upon, set in his garden as personal representatives there, that proximity and that closeness the intimacy was disrupted by man and woman hiding from God because of the shame and the embarrassment that they felt as a result of their sin. And as a parent, when I'm separated from my kids, I've got to get them back. I've got to get them back. You know the feeling if you're a, if you're a parent. And I was at a pastor's conference as a, a part of last week. And at the conference I attended, one of the speakers always gives a biography of someone throughout church history as an encouragement to pastors. This year's was uh, Lemuel Hayes. He was an 18th century pastor, probably not a name that you recognize. Lemuel Hayes was the first black man ordained as a minister in the United States. And as an infant, he was abandoned by his mother. She was Scottish and her, his biological father was Africa. And this would have brought immense shame upon her, so rather than care for her own son, she simply abandoned him. And I listened to the biography, I couldn't stop praising God that despite the fact that Adam willfully disobeyed, and the, despite the fact that I regularly and you regularly willfully rebel against God, God never abandons Adam and he never abandons us. And even though Eve was deceived and neglected God's word, and even though I am regularly deceived and neglect God's word, and you are regularly deceived and neglect God's word, God never abandoned her and he never abandons us. 
God knows what happened when he shows up in the garden. And he even initiates the contact. So that's where we're going to start this morning. We're going to walk through these verses, look at them closely, and then draw on some implications at the end. Look at verse 8 with me, just the first half. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So first of all, God shows up. God shows up. In verse 8, God comes in the garden. He knows what has happened. Again, the rest of the scripture is clear that God knows all things. But he shows up. And the garden is special to God because it's a place where he put his image bearers. It's a special place in creation. He made exclusively for them. And we shouldn't take this to mean that God isn't omnipresent again or isn't everywhere all of the time. But we should see that this is an expression of intimacy. God showing up to commune with his beloved creation. So this is highlighting the inverse of what we saw a couple weeks ago. In chapter 2, man's relationship with God is unbroken, but now something isn't quite right. Something isn't quite right. God shows up, but something is wrong. He knows what's transpired, but he shows up and seeks out the man and the woman anyways. And this is important. God didn't say, come on, guys. I put you here. Now I've got to start over this whole process because you messed it all up. But we are shown here by God simply showing up into the garden that God has a deep and unwavering commitment to his image bearers. And then in the second half of verse 8 and verse 9, we see that the man and the woman, they hide. They hide from God. Man and woman's attempts to cover themselves with fig leaves like we saw in in verse 7 last week. Their attempts to cover themselves are woefully inadequate. And they feel the pressure of that, that new sensation. I don't know if you've ever had one of these dreams, but I have. Confession time. Where I show up to a meeting or to work or to school and I'm not fully dressed. You know the sense of exposure that you feel when in that dream? And maybe you haven't, that's fine. Some of us have. But Adam and Eve see their coverings as not enough. They're exposed. And overall, they hide out of shame and embarrassment. But it is utter foolishness for them to presume that they can hide from God in the first place. And like a father whose child has gone into his or her own bedroom and hid behind the dresser after disobeying, God simply asks the question, where are you? Where are you? Not that he doesn't know, but it's an indicator that it's time to get the truth out in the open. And note the language here. God called to the man and said to him, where are you? God calls out to the man. And this language is that of a loving and gentle father looking for his child. Where are you? The language is call, of called is, fall, fall, uh, is found all throughout Scripture. God is continually calling out to God and bringing them back to himself. The nature of the call in the New Testament is that it says, I have made a way for you. And he calls out to Adam and Eve. 
And so God seeks them and he calls out to Adam. And then in verses 10 through 11, look there with me. And he said, I heard the sound, this is Adam speaking, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, God kindly and graciously calls Adam and Eve out to them and he finds them. God doesn't smoke them out of hiding. I think the language again here is, is chosen very intentionally. God drawing them, calling them, seeking them. And think about Adam's initial response, though. He says, I was afraid. And again, this is another new sensation. He felt exposed. He felt naked. He felt embarrassed. He felt shame. And then he says, I feel afraid. Another, another very real and new sensation for Adam. And it admits Adam's guilt. Adam knew that he willfully rebelled against God and his word. And the result of was fear because of sin, his nakedness, that shame and the embarrassment, all that come along with it. But as God finds Adam, there's something that we should see. Adam's view of the world around him is suddenly super self-focused. He went from having an unbroken relationship with God, his wife and creation, to a very introspective view where he says... I was afraid. I was naked. I hid myself. And those three I statements give us a very clear portrait that Adam's focus now is exclusively on himself. A.W. Tozer once said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But it's hard for us to be thinking about God, or anything else for that matter, when we are totally self-consumed. And that's what Adam is doing here. Adam's admission that he is afraid, naked, and in hiding prompts God's next two questions in verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? And that question is, in fact, rhetorical. I think it should be taken that way. The answer to the question is clear. No one told Adam that. The guilt and the shame and the embarrassment that Adam felt came from inside. It was a clear violation of God's word and left his conscience unable to bear the weight. And then God asks, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? This question is another kindness that God shows to Adam because he gives him the answer. God gently leads Adam toward admitting his guilt. <laughs> But then, in verses 12 through 13, we see that Adam isn't there. He's not there yet. God is gently leading him towards admitting his guilt, and Adam does something incredible. He tries to justify himself, and then his wife follows suit. So, God's question, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Adam then doubles down. He doubles down. And he continues to justify himself. And this leaves us without any doubts of the complete corruption of sin. Eve, bone of Adam's bone and flesh of his flesh, like he says at the end of chapter 2, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, is made into Adam's scapegoat. Adam fails to protect his wife and ultimately to love her by becoming a threat 
to her. He blames her for his failure to hear and to heed the word of God. But Adam doesn't stop with his wife. He also blames God. Look at what he says. The woman whom you gave to me. (laughs) The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit. He blames God and says, God, if you hadn't given me this woman, none of this would have happened. And the implication then is that God should have never given Eve to him. And the serpent deceived Eve by implying that God was withholding and Adam accuses God of giving him the wrong thing. Again, the deception, last week we explored that deception. The deception says... God is not in fact generous. He is withholding to you. And then it flips on its head here and says, God is generous, but he's given us all the wrong stuff. God's creative order is all tangled up through Adam's act of rebellion and his attempt at self-justification. And then God turns to Eve in verse 13 and says, what is it that you have done? Eve follows the example of her husband and passes the blame down to the serpent. And of of course, none of this is going to fly. Adam receives the word of God, willfully rebelled, and attempts to pass the buck up to God and down to his wife. And Eve sends the blame down to the serpent, who was a beast of the field, meant to be subject, meant to be subject to the man and woman. So there are a few implications here that we can draw from these eight verses. Not that many. Five verses. First, we see God's kindness. We see God's kindness here in ways that I I think that when we're just reading this through in our Bible reading plan, we often miss. There's an incredible amount of kindness that God shows here. I was reading Aeschylus this week, (laughs) as one does. And he's an ancient Greek playwright, a writer of several tragedies, and he's said to be the father of tragedy. And one of those tragedies he wrote was called Agamemnon. And in the play, Clytemnestra, Agamemnon's wife, murders him. It's a tragedy. And in the aftermath of murdering her husband, Clytemnestra says, My heart is steel, well you know. Praise me, blame me as you choose, it's all one. I read those two lines and I thought, is this what we think about God? Is this what we think about God? Do we think that God is up there and he's disengaged? Disasters and tragedies are happening all around us. Loved ones are dying. There's dramatic injustice swirling around us. And he's saying, yeah, praise me or blame me, whatever you want to do. It's all the same to me. This text stands in direct opposition to that mindset. We should see him as kind. God is desiring our worship and desiring to draw us to himself. And he's overflowing with kindness and generosity. And 
Maybe you're unconvinced that God is kind and generous. And so let me just appeal to you. Let this text reshape your thinking about God. We see that Adam and Eve sin, but God doesn't abandon them. In fact, he comes to them and gently leads them. And maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering, the way I've treated others and the way that I've cut corners at work and the way that I've acted towards my spouse and the way that I've failed my kids, you're wondering if those things have resulted in God just writing you off. I really really want you to see that this text shows us that that is never the case. God gently approaches Adam and Eve, not in anger, but again as a gentle father and draws them in with questions, not accusations, not demands, but he gently questions them and allows for them an opportunity to see their sin clearly before them. Now, that doesn't necessarily go well because again, there's self-justification here and they double down and then, and then God states it as it is in the next several verses, which we'll explore over the next several weeks. But, but the way that he approaches the man and the woman shows us very clearly that God is kind and that he is, in fact, generous. With the serpent accused God of not being, God shows, demonstrates himself to be those things very clearly here in these verses. Paul says in Romans 2 verse 4 that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so if we think about what Tozer right wrote when we said that a moment ago, if what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us, then God's kindness must be one of the first things that we think about. Because it is his kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. And I'm going to suggest to you that the reason that you're here this morning might be because you need to hear that the sin you've gone back to over and over and over again, God is calling you gently and kindly out of it. He's not a red-faced father screaming at you, calling you stupid for not getting it right. But a gentle father who wants you to draw you back into himself. And now... Part of this, though, that we must acknowledge is that God's kindness doesn't ignore sin, but it addresses it with truth. And that's the second implication. The second implication that we see here in this text is that you can't hide from God. You cannot hide from God. And if we consider the context of that whole Romans 2 verse that Paul writes, Romans 2.4, he says, It's actually a question. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Some of you have persisted in secret sin for for a long, long time. Things behind closed doors by yourself for the privacy of your own home. And you've made the critical error of presuming on the riches of God's kindness. The purpose of God's kindness is to lead you repentance, not to lead you to draw the conclusion that God is indifferent towards your sin. Yet, that's the conclusion that we regularly draw. We see it here. Adam and Eve feel exposed, and so they hide Sin will always lead you to feel exposed. And when you neglect God's word, like we talked about last week, you might find yourself attempting to hide from God. 
Maybe you burst out in anger regularly, or maybe you've lusted after or had sex with someone who you're not married to. Maybe you've sought hard after temporary material things and sought satisfaction just simply in stuff. Or maybe you've succumbed to bitterness or frustration or things that are subtle but rooted deeply in a self-centered, self-focused attitude. Whatever it happens to be, God sees it. God sees it. And His kindness and patience are designed to lead you to Turn from those things, not to press into them further. If your sin has left you feeling exposed, repent and turn from it. Don't pass the buck. You're responsible for your sin. You're not a victim. You can't blame your circumstances or your disposition. So rather than passing the buck, praise God for His kindness and His patience that's designed to lead you to turn from that sin. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is an area where we operate as functional atheists more than any other area of our lives. You've heard me use that term before. That we think that the things that we do are exclusively seen by us or exclusively operate within our own hearts. But friends, God sees it. All are naked and exposed to give to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now that seems like a whole lot of bad news. But the good news is this, and it's the last implication that we have. The last implication that we see here is this. There is hope to be justified. Just not like Adam and Eve tried to justify themselves by passing the blame in the buck. Adam sought to self-justify. And Eve shifts the blame to the serpent. But neither one of these will result in justification for the man and the woman. They don't. We'll see that next week when we get to the curse. And if we're honest, we're usually trying to shift the blame or pass the buck for our sin and for our willful rebellion. Just like Adam and Eve. President Harry Truman had a sign on his desk that said, The buck stops here. The buck stops here. But the incredible thing about this and why I say there is hope to be justified is because when we are always trying to self-justify our sin, when we openly acknowledge that we have in fact sinned against a holy God, repent and turn from it, we're, we're told to pass the buck. In Jesus, we are invited to pass the buck. Because Jesus takes the blame. Your sin, your bitterness, your frustration, your anger, your loose tongue, your lust and sexual sin, your blatant disregard for God's word. Jesus takes the blame for your, all of your sin. This is what Paul calls in the New Testament justification. When we seek to self-justify ourselves, we fail. But when we see that Jesus is our justification, our sin is taken far from us, as far as the east is from the west. You seek to self-justify by playing the victim, complaining about your circumstances, blaming your disposition, but God provides a way for you to be justified because attempts to self-justify are totally inadequate. The way that he made is Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we 
accept the responsibility for the sin that we've so freely engaged in, Jesus comes to us and God is kind and he sees everything. He sees your sin and your mess, that which separates you from him, and he listens patiently to our attempts to justify our behavior like a patient father. And we grit our teeth and we double down and we point our fingers and we shift the blame and we pass the buck just like Adam and Eve. And when we tire ourselves out, when the kicking and screaming is over, he gently gathers us into his arms and he says, I've made a way. I've made a way. Says the man who loses his prodigal son, my son was dead and he is alive. He was lost and is found. And then he begins to celebrate. Friends, this morning, don't put it off any longer. Go to your kind and generous Heavenly Father. Repent of that secret sin that has enslaved you. Jesus took the blame for you. Jesus took the blame for you and freely justifies you. Your self-justification is woefully inadequate. But Jesus, friends, is wholly sufficient. Let's pray.